This is the Property Solopreneur Podcast, and I'm Rachel Troughton. I'll be talking about everything you need to create wealth by building your portfolio in a sustainable and profitable way. I'll be sharing the realities of a property investing business. I'll talk bricks and mortar, buy to let, HMOs, flipping and planning game, as that's what we all enjoy doing. But I'll also share how to use good systems, processes, and find the right professionals to work with. In fact, everything that will enable you to become a successful property solopreneur. Welcome to this week's episode of the Property Solopreneur. And my guest today is someone who set up their own business whilst working at a high level in prominent corporate, running both side by side very successfully and with no problem caused to either side. This is something that really ties many property people up in knots when starting out because they get going learning the ropes of a property business while still in full-time work, either because their job is so fabulous that they never want to leave and they know that property will give them the financial freedom that they crave, or they want to set up a business that will be profitable and well-run before they hand the notice in. Susan Aubrey-Kund has over 25 years in the corporate world, working for British Airports Authority, M&S, and for the Daily Mail Group in management roles within the marketing and e-commerce departments, as well as working with a tech startup in Tel Aviv, where she worked alongside the giants of the tech world who are always making the impossible possible. It's this knowledge of marketing and e-commerce and how to set up a business from scratch and make it profitable and visible without interfering with your day job that I prized out of Susan today. Well, welcome to the Property Solopreneur. Thank you. And one of the reasons I, I was wanting to have you on today is because you've got an enormous background of marketing, as I've said, but not only that, you did set up your own company online um, to do what you wanted to do at the same time as remaining in corporate. And that is something that so many people in property actually find themselves doing. They they start off because they're in their real job, as they, we call it, and then they get going in property and then they go, oh, my word, can I do both? Is this possible? And can I make enough money to leap out of my day job? But you started knowing exactly what you wanted to do. How did you change from having an idea to making it reality? I think the tipping point for me was realising that I had spotted a gap in the market, which at the time was that I was doing a lot of consultancy work. I was walking to work in London and I realised I had to carry a pair of shoes to change into when I got there. And I was working in tech, so I was working in e-commerce. So as a consequence, the transition to finding a, a, a way to set up a website that sold low-heeled shoes that I could walk to work in and then not have to carry uh, anything else when I got there. That was the transition point for me in terms of having an idea. But I think the the sort of tipping point in, in terms of actually is this doable uh, was uh, and, and did I have the appetite to do it was driven by a conversation with a colleague and I just started talking to people about what shoes they were wearing and did they have the same problem as, as myself in finding comfortable low-heeled shoes that were smart enough for work. And I asked this woman why she was wearing and why she'd chosen the shoes she was wearing. And she actually cried and said she hated them. She was mortified to be seen in them, but she couldn't find anything else. And this was in 2015. So it was before really that the whole fashion industry in shoes got into digital in a big way. So there wasn't actually very much online. I did a lot of research about it and I couldn't find what I wanted. And I thought, well, if I can't find what I wanted, neither can anyone else. 
So that that was the flip for me, was that there was a market. It was related to what I was doing. And I sort of felt that actually, given that I was a consultant, it kind of added credibility to my skill set and, and my rationale of, of, of the recommendations I was making to clients because I kind of had skin in the game myself. I was actually doing it myself too. And that was something I could could actually reference. So that was it. It fit, fitted together. But I had worked out that there really was a proposition here. It, it was something that other women and particularly professional women would find relevant. And so, of course, you brought into that you had skills from your normal day job. Yes. I think most of us have more skills that you get from work than you realise. What sort of things did you realise were you were able to sort of bring from your real life, your real corporate life? Well, the slightly hilarious thing for me was that all the people I had worked with in corporate life thought the idea of me starting a shoe business was hilarious because they only really seen me in the sort of corporate structure, which was, you know, marketing, finance, business development, strategy, you know, all the things I'd worked across, but they were very specifically paper-based, if you like, or digitally based. They, they weren't actually making the product. And what they didn't know was that I'd been to art college and I designed stuff in my home life all the time. And I thought I could do this. And I, you know, that's the 5% of my life that makes the rest of it worthwhile for me, the bits where I get to do creative things. So for me, this was a natural transition. My purely corporate um, colleagues thought it was slightly hilarious. But people who'd worked with me in consultancy or who'd worked with me on smaller businesses said, well, that's perfect because you tend to flip in and out of the strategic piece around why are we, why, what proposition do we have? Is our business model going to work? What is the market doing? All those sorts of transferable skills. So how, how does a business actually work? And what do you need to do to make that different from the competition? How do you position yourself? What is your USP? How do you create a service or a product that doesn't already exist? Or if it does, how is it different? All those sorts of things transfer then to starting and running a much smaller business. And I think that people have a tendency to assume that because you've worked in corporate life, it's only transferable to a really big business. And, and it isn't. It really isn't. You know, actually running a small business is, is it, you have to be, in, you have to wear lots of hats, sure. But actually there are hard skills and soft skills. And what I mean by that are the hard skills are things like finance, marketing, business strategy, some of which you will find very easy to do and some of which you will need to get somebody else to help you with because either it terrifies you to the point that it freezes you or just think, I, I just can't do this. Um, but the other, the other skills are what I call soft skills. So they're things like resilience. If you work in a big corporate, you have to be able to deal with people, manage messages, work out what battles are worth fighting, but also motivate yourself. And, you know, you need to have a, a severe word with yourself when you start being self-employed or starting a business and say, actually, do I have the resilience to keep on doing this when all around me fails, when I get up and I don't feel well, but I've got to do something, when stuff doesn't work how I thought it would, and I've got to say, actually, that wasn't a good idea. So so that's one one soft skill which you can take. Being a self-starter, yeah. can you get yourself out of bed in the morning when there isn't somebody saying there's a meeting at nine o'clock? So those sorts of things actually, you know, that they are completely transferable to a small business um, and to a startup. Fantastic. Now, how do you overcome the fear of the stuff you don't know? Many people, you know, particularly in property, the acquiring the property knowledge is relatively simple. But as you've just mentioned, there's all this stuff about running a business that most people don't know. You know how do you get over the terrifying thought, I, I'm going to get it wrong before I even start? 
Okay, I think the first thing I did was to try and make a list. What are all the things I'm going to need to do to run a business? And that can take you quite a long time. That isn't something you're going to do, you know, in 10 minutes. Um, and the easiest thing I found to do was to, to just start reading stuff online, but also apply your logic. So I sat down, having decided I wanted to make shoes, my first question was clearly, how do I make shoes? Is that at all feasibly possible? But also then, so what do I need to do to actually set up the business? I am going to need things like a name. I'm going to need a bank account. I'm going to need either an accountant or accountancy software to, to, to run it. I'm going to need systems and processes. Then I thought about, okay, so if I've done that, I'm going to need to register the business. How do I do that? And the interesting thing nowadays is that you can actually just Google it. Just start with Google and say, how do I, whatever it is. Yep. Now, there are going to be some things that you don't know you don't know. Um, and yes. you will discover those along the way. But that actually, if you, for example, Googled, how do I start a small business? Some people will have interpreted that question with a list of you need to register on this website or you need to have a VAT account or you need to, all those things. Other people will go, you need to have an idea. You need to have a logo. You need to, they'll give you lots of different angles on it. Just write them all down and then work out whether it's relevant to your kind of business. Um, and then sort of set in motion the, the process to do it, which is a, basically a list of things you have to do and probably a timeline because that helps if you just set yourself some objectives. Um, I think one of the things which I found most useful when I first started was the fact that I am an obedient child and I will... My my worst nightmare is thinking I'm going to go to prison for something I haven't intentionally done. So I have a list of, of things that will get Susan into trouble, like not paying bills to HMRC on time, like not knowing I'm supposed to pay bills to HMRC on time, all of those sorts of things. So I literally wrote down what keeps me awake at night, what would be the worst case scenario. And then I found out what I was supposed to do about them just by looking up online. So the first thing I did was open a bank account because I was very worried about HMRC coming after me going, you've muddled up your personal and your business expenditure. So six months before I took, before I placed an order or took an order, I had a bank account. I registered the, the name of the business. And that was an interesting process because I wanted to make sure that it wasn't actually my name on it. Now, it might be the right thing to do to put my, you know, your name on it for some people. But I didn't think it was because I had a long track record of corporate life and I wanted to call this business something different. So therefore, I needed a trademark and I needed to be able to register that trademark. So those sorts of things, again, I googled, how do I do it? And it's all very straightforward. It's not very expensive. And you can, if you've got time, you can do it yourself. You know, it really is that hard. Now you were feeling secure. Um, and as you say, you've got to create the persona of the company, which is a logo, uh, you know, it's brand colours. Again, that's very daunting for some people, but you've got to have them because otherwise you can't do any social media, can you? That's right. You can't. You you need to be able to communicate clearly who you are and how to find you is is the the critical thing. From otherwise, your your starting point is how do I get business? And if people can't find you, it doesn't matter how brilliant you are when they see you, they're going to want to look you up later. And if they can't do that, you've wasted your time. So and you wasted theirs as well, which is annoying. So. Um, the, the first thing really was to to research ideas and options. And I think probably this is where perhaps for some people it'll be about using your network. So I knew that I, and I've worked in marketing. I understand what the, the brand journey is. So, you know, it's more than a logo. It's what do we stand for in terms of, of product positioning? How am I different from the competition? How do I explain that difference in words? 
But then how do I translate that into a logo or a phrase or a title that I can put on my website, put on my business card, put on my product, and people can say, oh, I know who they are. And I, I sort of get what they stand for from that. And I think there's probably two aspects of that. In some some industries, and maybe property is is one of them, those sort of graphic devices and branding it may not need to absolutely express every last part of your of your 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 brand essence because you actually have words to, to communicate with. In mine, I was up it's the fashion business, it was in, in in shoes. My brand logo needed to express the fact that I was referencing the 60s and I had I'd caught, you know, I, I'd created a, a niche of, of low-heeled shoes. So my brand, and I can show you this actually on that probably back front, but it, it was a sort of 60s device here on a logo. And in fact, if I bend over, you can see there behind me that that's it in black and white. So those two examples, yes. that was the, 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 the sort of 60s reference. It was yellow. And this this device here with the flower was something I was able to use on everything. It's, it's Olive Aubrey, so OA. And I worked out that the best way to actually communicate that on lots of bits of marketing was actually to have my website underneath it as well. And that was one of the things I added afterwards. But basically what I did was to say to myself, I don't, I can't design that myself because I'm not a graphic designer. Who do I know? Who in my network is a graphic designer or knows one? And I just literally got in touch with them. I gave them the brief, which was literally a couple of, of lines saying, here is what I stand for. I had lots of pictures of the product and I told them what I was going to try and do with it. And that is critical. What do you actually need from them? And I, I literally wrote a customer journey in my, in my, my sort of way of thinking, which was, there's going to be a website, so I need something that works online. I need a, an actual logo because I'm going to put it in the product. I'm going to be using that logo in black and white and in colour because I'm not always going to want to print everything in colour because it's expensive. But I'm going to need to do labels, dispatch items, and also marketing materials. And the key thing here is don't do something which is too confusing, twirly, has lots of different colours in it, You know, is really hard to do in black and white. And do something which you can actually print alongside copy and images that isn't going to argue with it too much. So those sorts of things, and that just comes out of my experience, but that would be my recommendation to people. Just find a friend or you know somebody who isn't going to cost you very much. It cost me a crate of wine, for example, to do my logo and my marketing. And I was hugely grateful for the person who did it. And um, they, they thought it was fun because it, it's falling off a log to them. They do it every day. I explained what I was trying to do. I hadn't got any money. That was it. Absolutely. And that 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 you've summed that up there because so many people when we're starting a property, it, we have no money because um, we can see that it's going to bring in a lot of money. But we're, 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 and we, need, we know that we can borrow money. We know that people will believe in us. But it's what you've just described there is that's what we need to have to set up because that makes us believable to people who who understand business and they are the ones who are going to loan us money. And that comes back to the next bit, which is it's no matter what you're doing. And I, I come across a lot of people in property who want to be totally invisible. That's not possible if you want to borrow money, if you want. Um, I, I mean, and even the bank note, that the people really think that, that, they, they, that they, they want to start something which they're really excited about and then they want to sort of back off and be behind the scenes. And it's not all about me, me, me. It's actually about communicating the brand personality and being authentic. You know, you, you are involved. What you're starting is, is hopefully going to be brilliant and is brilliant. So be proud of it and don't be afraid to put yourself out there a bit. People will find you if you put yourself out there. If you hide, they're never going to. And one of the things I realised was in the corporate life that I was in, that my identity was well known. People knew who I was. When I turned up, I had a big brand name behind me and people would go, oh, that's the woman from Marks and Spencer or whoever it is. When you're working for yourself, you don't have that. 
And certainly when you're starting out, you don't have that. So you've got to, to create that awareness and you've got to create that presence. And the biggest asset you've got in that is you. And therefore, that's the bit you've got to do. But don't worry about having to be terribly polished and you know perfect and corporate about it. That that's not that may not be authentic for your brand, and it isn't going to help you because it'll probably that that thinking will be a barrier to just getting out there and doing something. For example, one of the first things that I um, realised I had been slow to do was actually to leverage social media, because I started up with a family and friends database, which was about 150 people. And I got a lot of orders from that, funnily enough. People were very supportive, and I was surprised at that. But do not be confused between a real market and your friends and family, because they will be supportive, but it may not actually indicate the true level of demand for your product. So don't be seduced by, you know, I mean, it would have been very easy. I had 150 people on my database, and I sold 76 pairs of shoes on day one. You know, clearly that's not normal. It was lovely, but it, but it's not actually real life. No. Um, what I sort of realised was sort of relatively rapidly was that a very small amount of effort on, on social media builds over time. You build up your profile. You build up the number of, of followers you have. And you just need to do authentic things. Don't worry about it being perfect. Don't worry about it being a you know a marketable example of social media. You know, no one's giving you marks out of ten for this to start with. Just do it. It doesn't matter if you get it wrong. You can always delete it. And um, actually, it might be right. Yes, that yeah. And, and and of course, many people have only used social media to show you know Flossie the dog um, and the fact that they're standing by you know the Empire State Building or whatever it is on holiday. And it is very daunting. And so you know. It's wise just having a plan before you even plunge into social media. Yes, and and I think you know when I started in, in well I, when I first started using social media was in two thousand and six seven. I was launching a, a huge campaign for Marks and Spencer, which was around sustainability. And at that point, social media really wasn't very big at all. You know, some of the big fashion companies were doing it, but there were relatively few sort of influencers. And I was working with a lot of NGOs, non governmental organisations. Now they were all over it because they're zealots. And what you try and find in social media is where are the zealots for what I'm doing, whether they are people on mum's net or whether they are people who are putting what you know you might call property porn on Instagram. You know, who yep. are these people? Where are they? And you need to appeal to them. And actually, once you work that out, you know, what is your market? Where are they likely to be? What are they interested in? Those form your hashtags for your social media. And it's just quite interesting to try some hashtags and see what works and what doesn't. And again, within that, you don't have to do something wildly clever. Just keep the conversation going. And and it is a conversation. You know, quite often people will comment and it's good if you can can comment back. I think the the other part of it is that it just work out what schedule you can actually fulfill. Yeah. If you, for example, are very busy, don't set yourself an objective of posting three times a day. Because it just becomes a beast you have to feed, and and probably you're talking to yourself in the early st phrase stages because you haven't got a huge following. The second thing is if you become boring, nobody will follow you. So you know, don't overstretch it, but just find relevant things to say and keep it short. Absolutely, and you know, and and find people that you you like in return, and sort of as you say, start the conversation now. Um, you know, another thing that is very key for us is photography. Sorry, Rachel, I better just say one thing here, which is that. People will give you a lot of flannel about social media. Don't don't weep into your soup if on day two it hasn't generated any sales, nothing happens. You, know, you always hear the big success stories and they've always been going far longer than anyone would have you believe. 
And I think that the key thing is look at your metrics. So find a way of tracking it. Now, I was actually using a Shopify platform for my website, for example. Shopify is brilliant, really easy for an e-commerce platform. But the, one of the really great things about it is it tracks where your customers come from. And very early on, I realized that I didn't have to do very much on email to get a big response. Yep. I didn't have to do much on Instagram, Facebook, or any of the other platforms to get a big response. But the one thing I did have to do was to make sure that I posted every now and then. And for me, I, I tested it and worked out that there were certain times of, of day that I got a better response. There were certain types of message that got me a better response. And actually, to my immense joy, they were the very easy ones for me to do, which is literally post a picture of a pair of shoes and show people how it's worn in different ways. And that actually touched a, a really core need of my customer. It wasn't just, do I like the product? Is how am I going to wear it? And I mean, I love doing that. You know, I, I wrote articles about how to uh, use grey tights as a bridge between a coloured dress and a, a pair of shoes as a, that were a different colour. Yes. Uh, how to use the same coloured tights. You know, what sort of legs worked best with, you know, stupid comments about things that amuse people. But actually that did keep people interested. And um you know, it was it was a it was a relevant post. Absolutely. I mean, I can think direct. Uh, I I I've got a client who I absolutely adore because she posts regularly the five most hideous tiles I've found in a rundown house. Which, when you look at everybody else's social media, which is like, what I'm doing is absolutely amazing. Look at these perfect houses. I, you know, these are selling for millions, and she is posting, and you go. I can't believe anyone ever, ever had tiles like that in their house. But you find yourself completely engaged. Absolutely. And that is, after all, what you want. And took photographs of shoes that shouldn't have been worn to the Chelsea Flower Show in the first season that I did. And, you know, that was one of those things which, because my my, my subjects, my victims, if you like, were, were headless, they couldn't be identified. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't being mean to people. But it was things like, you know, shoes that clearly either didn't fit or were uncomfortable. I wasn't mocking people's, you know, their fashion sense. It was actually just about, this is an occasion where a low-heeled shoe would be perfect. And, and let's go and find some content. And, you know, people were, were very engaged in it. I, I mean, I obviously asked their permission before I took a picture. I didn't say, you know, one way or the other why I was doing it. And some of them actually had the most fabulous shoes. And, you know, and the post was about, this was great. But there were an awful lot of grey rung over trainers there as well. And it was one of those things where you just think, you know, there's a license for me to, to talk about that. And it's actually helpful to my customer to see what works and what doesn't. And it's a relevant post. And there is a lot of bleed over, you know, a lot of property people can take from that and, and, and work with it because it's not all about, you know, you buy and you do and you make this amount of money. And, and their photography very neatly adds on because the quality of your photographs, both in property and in a, on social media, is terribly important. And it, how did you start off by getting the right photos? Yeah, I mean, I think social media is more, is more forgiving in the sense that people understand that if it's a captured moment, that sometimes you you know you can't set it up with the right lighting and perfect and and so on. I would say though that if the mar the marketing and photography actually for your business is critical because it does need to look professional. Now I was relatively lucky in the sense that I've been to art college. I knew how to use a digital camera, and also that there are millions of packages now online that will really help you do this. And I think people have a tendency to overlook what they can learn and do themselves. Yep. But if you hate that stuff, it's going to be a barrier if you try and do it yourself. I was very fortunate because um, I was able to work with my sister and um, I was the model and she was able to take photos of me. And I'd worked out very early on that I had to be headless 
because otherwise that involved hair and makeup, which given that I was photographing shoes, which are at the other end of my body, that was quite a logical thing for my customers. They didn't mind the headless mirroring in my marketing. So you could see an example of my sister's photography there behind me on the wall, sitting on my front steps, for example. And oddly enough, I've been offered money for that photograph. Um, a man thought it was a 60s vintage image and offered me several hundred pounds for it. So Good Lord. I know. It's amazing. But we literally spent a couple of days with me changing into different outfits, my sister just using the, the camera on the tripod and me running backwards and forwards looking at it and saying, yes, we need a few more of those. Okay, we've got that now. Let's move on. And just took hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pictures. And, and then we edited down as which ones were good and which ones weren't. And I think that the, the outtake from that was that I then I edited it down to a few really good pictures and then I used them relentlessly in my marketing. And I think it's, 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 I'm a very visual person. And I think that what really helps to, to get your brand known and to get your credibility is consistency in that area. So if you've got a couple of killer pictures, your logo is, is clear and, and worked out. Make sure that your marketing materials are consistent. You don't change colors, you don't change format. So if you have, for example, this picture behind me, I used throughout my first season. I referenced that picture in every piece of marketing I did. It might not be the only picture and it might not be the lead picture, nope. but I just kept coming back to it. And I think that's really quite helpful. It, you know, people, you need to tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you've told them. It, you know, that's not me being original. That's a well-known phrase about presentations, but it's the same in, in how you approach your marketing and how you use your images. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, most people don't realize when they start in property that you need to create a bank of photos that you can use for a variety of things to prove what you've done before, particularly if you're trying to go forward for finance and um, and raise enough money to do the next step of whatever it is. I was going to say that was critical for me because the, when I started, I, I had no background in making shoes and I had to go and find factories who needed to believe that actually I and I'm sorry because this is going to sound terribly derogatory, but I apply it to myself. They needed to believe that I was not just a bored housewife going out to Milan and hoping to get some samples for relatively little money in my own size. And believe me, there are a lot of people like that at trade shows. So I had to make sure before I went out to those trade shows that I had a website set up that looked credible and a logo and all the rest of it. And part of that, you know, these these were visual people I was talking to, had to be that the credibility of the artwork and the photography. And and that when people then reference every time now, as soon as somebody knows about you, they'll go and look you up. So whatever you have online needs to be consistent, but it also needs to look professional. Yes. And and again, that people worry about that, but in there are so many cheap ways now of putting up a website and and doing the basics. But it's just got to have the few key sort of killer photos that look fantastic. And again, most people know a friend who who is probably pretty nifty with an iPhone or whatever. Is, yeah, whatever the phone is of your choice. And you know, the, it does mean that you can then show really good before and after shots and it just makes people understand what you've done. But of course, no matter what property or uh, business you're in, there are key things you've got to do. And one of them, of course, is numbers, isn't it? Yes, it is. So if, if the process I went through um, was, was very straightforward because I uh, thought about, my, my first question was, how much money can I afford to lose? Because we didn't know whether this was going to work. And I know that's really a very sort of negative way of looking at it, but I just thought, I don't want to bet the farm on this. I mean, literally, I, I don't want to sort of sit here and go, oh, woe is me. I've started something I was really enthusiastic about and now I'm, now I'm bust. Not going to happen. So 
I set aside £30,000, which is, is quite a lot. I didn't think I'd ever use that. I thought I was probably going to use about twelve to fifteen. So I then worked out, okay, what is the cost price of what I'm doing? So in my case, it was shoe stock and my time. Yep. And I worked out how many I thought I, well, how much profit I wanted to make in a year. What was actually worth a risk? How much money yep. did I want to make? And then I worked out from that, how many pairs of shoes did I have to sell? And how much stock that was going to cost me? And it's kind of a, it, it, it's a sort of chicken and egg conversation with yourself in that because you flip-flop back into, okay, so that means I have to do X amount. Well, is that doable? Because that means I have to spend Y amount. And I, my advice would be, it's very easy for these numbers to become sort of academic because they're on a piece of paper, yeah. you've allocated an amount of money. And then it doesn't seem like real money anymore. It is real money. It's your money. So look at it from the point of view of risk. So is it worth risking this amount of money to make the X amount of money? So if I'm going to spend, say, 12, I think my original costs were between 12 and 15,000 on stock and marketing and equipment for the office, so printer, computer, that sort of thing, um, yep. and a bit of marketing on, on an event. If I've spent that, how many pairs of shoes do I need to, to sell? Because how many have I bought? Is that going to make enough money for me to um, to pay for all of that? Is it going? You know, what's the margin? What am I going to be left with after I've paid for all of that? So, how many pairs of shoes do I need to make to sell to make that worthwhile? And I think I worked out that my first year I had to sell five hundred pairs of shoes. My cost price was around sixty euros, so about forty five pounds at the time. Um, I knew what my other costs were, and I reckoned I was going to make around forty to fifty thousand pounds profit. Clearly, that's worth it on an outlay of the size I had. Now, yes, yeah, that was my process, and I think my my you know, but straight away it was: is it worth risking twelve thousand pounds to make fifty in profit? Yes, clearly it is. But yeah. what I hadn't worked out because I didn't know the industry, I didn't know that you know about buying fashion shoes, I didn't know how the factory process worked. I hadn't realised that it takes about six months in that cycle to, before between you and buying the, the product to it arriving and you being able to sell it, by which time you have had to have bought the next season. You have to place that order. So actually, I needed two cycles of money. And, and that's where the cash flow thing comes in, because I had a buffer. Now, I would say to anybody, work out how much you need and double it, because that gives you the buffer. Yes. And that was a rule of thumb, which I've read subsequently, which had I applied it to my own business would absolutely have come true. And I was fortunate. I'd set aside 30,000. And of course, because I then had to go ahead and buy season two before I'd even sold season one, I needed that. Absolutely. And that, that is something that, that that applies to property very much in that it, it's a train um, and it's no good. You know, you can write a brilliant business plan that says at the end of year one, I'm going to make myself, you know, 50 grand because I'm going to have done two flips. But there are only 12 months and, and the buying process of a property and selling it. Well, that's that's half a year gone straight away. So you I you know, you will have to have more than one property on the go. Doesn't mean say you own it. But you are funding or expecting to fund two properties or more simultaneously. And that's where cash flow and making sure that you've got enough money in the bank or access to it is really important. And I think the key thing for me was that I, I was doing other things at the same time. So I, I had income coming in from other areas. I didn't mix the waters. I didn't pull money in from the businesses where I was earning money into the business that I was starting. I set aside an amount of money. I had it in that bank account. I did not cross-fertilize them. But the money I had coming in the other areas, then it, I was sort of emboldened by that, if you like. It made me feel that I could take a little bit of risk on my business because 
I actually had other money coming in. Don't be ashamed of actually running the two things at the same time if you can. Yes, and that that before we go, uh, I'll just suddenly something spot popped into my brain before we move on to a bit more of numbers. Um, many people who in property are often in their own job, and they don't necessarily ever want to leave their 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 daytime job. Property is a side hustle; it's going to give them their pension. It's a bit of fun that they do every year, but this this does prevent them from getting out there and finding funds because they're terrified that their real world will know all about their property world. Um, you know, and how do I run two social medias or whatever? Um, did you find that everyone was watching your every move when you worked in corporate full time? When I worked in corporate, because I was working for some big brand names, they were clearly very focused on what I was doing on social media and I had to make sure that that, that they were separate. Um, I, I don't I think what's interesting for me is that I, I think it's a bit like going to a wedding. You can fret an awful lot about what you're going to wear to a friend's wedding, but hey, it's not about you, you know? No one's actually going to be looking at you. And so as a consequence, you, you've got a window when you're starting your new business where, to be quite blunt, no one's interested, you know? They're not going to be looking at you, but you've got to get out there and do it. You've got to, got to actually make some impact in that completely separate world. And I think that the, the people are now sufficiently comfortable with the idea of social media. They get it, that they understand that you can play in different places in different ways. And I think that as long as you don't cross them over, I and mean, we see a lot of media personalities getting it wrong, where they use their publicity from one brand to cross over into commenting in another area. Don't you know? Don't do that because it will get you into trouble because the big brand will have something to say about it. But but I think you can quite happily play, you know, with with different personas for yourself. As long as you're credible, you know, if you've got a business, you can be talking about it. And and I don't think that's an issue for other businesses. So none of the businesses I've worked with have had a problem with me being on social media, partly because I'm, I'm not contentious on social media. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm talking about a product I'm selling that that's not difficult. It's not it's not going to conflict with them. But also because it's um, again, actually, it shows energy. It shows that you're credible in what you do. So that only adds to your professional credibility. It's not going to be something which is a problem to anybody, I think. Well, that, that I'm sure is going to be very, very reassuring to some people because they, this is a, it is a great worry for them and it, it, it stops them from doing stuff. But back to the numbers, because numbers are terribly important. Because in property, we talk very big numbers, but everyone focuses on the property, how much it's costing, what they've got to do with it. And in fact, the behind the scenes figures are just as important. I mean, for instance, most people never, ever calculate their break-even point. Yes. So what I did to start with was was literally, because I had to buy an amount of stock, and that's a big commitment, like buying a property, you know, you it's, it's an, a fixed amount of money. So I translated that into how many shoes do I need to sell? How am I going to achieve that? How many per week is that? And what is the margin? And I think the issue for me was just working out what the margin was. And and don't hide things from yourself. Don't go, oh, well, that's a one-off cost, so I don't need to include that in the cost. Yes, you do. Because actually, you're, over a year, if you've got a setup cost, which is your computers, your printing paper, your, all of that, it can, it can come to quite a lot. The equipment you use, you know, a laptop, um, a f- mobile phone, the subscriptions you have to platforms, software, digital email marketing platforms, that all has to be built in. So I think what I did, and this, this sort of harks back to the beginning of our conversation about transferable skills, you know, if, if, you, if you've if you never worked looking at a P&L, go and have a look at one. Just, just Google a company online 
go to the to company's house and look at what they report in their, their company statement. Pick a little business because it'll be quite simple then. Um, and there are fixed costs and there are variable costs. So there are things that you do all the time which are variable costs. There are things like you know mailing costs, paper, stuff like that. Even product goes in there. And then there are fixed costs, which, which might be things like rent, which is absolutely on the nail, happens every month, end of. And then there are marketing and all those sorts of things. Just try and put them into buckets and be aware that you'll have to come to a number at the end of the year with them. I would say try and be ruthless with yourself about keeping records. Um, now, there are lots of digital tools that can help you do this. So one of the things I did to start off with, I mean, I, I told you at the beginning, I'm, you know, I'm an obedient child and I'm terrified of going to prison. So having set up my bank account, I then literally had a, a shoebox every month. And it didn't matter how busy I was. If I had an invoice and if I had a receipt, it went in the box and the box had the date on it. And at the end of the month, I put an elastic band around the box and no more went into it. I had another box for the next month because I knew that actually otherwise it would be when I came to do the, the, the sort of review of everything, it would be too difficult. The bliss now is that all of the online accounting packages effectively do this for you. So if you set up something like Zero and use that and you can do a notional payroll for yourself through it. You can do your expenses. You can link your cards. You can link your other bank accounts. You can do what you like with it. But zero effectively is your accountant then. If you use something like that, from the moment you start, life is easy. You don't have to worry about, I am not an accountant. I don't understand those numbers. That's that's taken care of. At least there is a record of it, which is the principal thing. In terms of actually the break-even point about finance, I mean, I, I just... I, I would advise people literally to treat it as you would do if you were running your household budget. It's the same thing. So you work out how much money you've got, you work out what you want to spend it on, and then is it going to, you know, in your household budget, it wouldn't be making you money, but it would be delivering an objective. So be clear about your objectives. How much money do I want to make? And if you and that and and you've and interestingly, there one thing that I think most property people have a problem with, and you've obviously not got the problem with, is paying for your own time. You know, you yes. are a cost. Yes, you are. And I mean, I had to weigh up several times whether an approach I had on consultancy or a full time job was what I wanted to do in preference. Could I do this job, you know, my, my little business at the same time? And the answer actually on that sometimes was yes. So for example, I took a, a very big piece of work with um, a startup I was working with in Tel Aviv. And I would quite often go out to Tel Aviv. Now I had to juggle my shoe business around that because clearly I cannot dispatch physical products if I am not even on the same continent. And I have to say, my husband at several points was very useful where I gave him literally a diagram of where in the office the shoe was, what had to be on the outside of the box. And I would hold up a picture on my end and show, and he had to show me one the other end. That, yes, that's the right shoe and it's the right size. We then had a process which how to dispatch things. You know, this is how you tie a ribbon around the box. This is how you put the label on the All those things were done in little sets before I left to go to Tel Aviv on the off chance that I would get an order from a customer who needed it by this weekend because she was going to a wedding or something like that. Yeah, I have absolutely. to say, most of the time, customers didn't insist. I mean, you hear stories about the internet, everyone insists on stuff being 24-hour delivery and so on. If you keep in touch with your customers, and this was the critical thing, being organised when I travelled abroad, I had everything on my laptop that I could deal with for my, on my other business while I was away. But the only thing I looked at all the time, 
every hour while I was away was the customer queries. Because if I had a customer order, I needed to tell her that I wasn't able to dispatch immediately. Was that okay? Did she want a refund? So that was the first the first protocol. Did she want a refund? In my entire, you know, eight years of, of trading to date, I've I've never had a refund like that. People were just unbelievable in saying, oh, that's no, fine. I can wait till as long as I told them when, and then I did it. That was the critical thing. So I think that sort of management and the juggling between jobs, it depends on what you're doing. But if you're organized and you plan around it, you can get there. The other thing I did was to actually manage the peaks and troughs. So if I knew I was going to be going away to Tel Aviv, I did not send out a mailing prompting sales two days before I went. I would do it 10 days before I went, which meant I could dispatch most of them before I went. And it also meant that I effectively mopped up the, the, the people who were sitting at home going, oh, am I going to buy that? Am I not? Oh, I might do it next week. I, I, that Sending them a mailing tripped them into buying it before I went away. Fam- yes, that, that's very helpful. Um, and, and I'm very wary of the fact that we'll be running out of time because you're so fascinating. One of the things that I, I wanted to know is how did you deal with the experts around you who wanted to tell you exactly how to run your business, but had never done anything more stressful than catch a bus in their life? <laughs> Well, I think sort of experts in, in my world fell into two categories. There were definitely some, uh, just like you, you said, and I think the key thing was I found that it didn't matter how actually impractical what they said was sometimes. And one has to sort of stifle your response to go, dude, you're ridiculous. Um, they, they aren't thinking about the finances. So I had you know one friend who was always telling me, oh, you should include free shoe polish, you should offer free repairs, you should do this, you should do that. The logistics and the cost of doing that was clearly impractical. But what I realised was that she was telling me that some of the styles I did were actually quite hard for normal customers to maintain. So things like metallic polish or people don't know where to get that. So I put that on my website. So although her suggestions were impractical, actually the grain of what she said was useful and relevant to my business. And she was a customer. So you know, listen to your customers. So I think that the other, the other, the other type of um, advice I got was I have a, a friend who works in private equity and his world is all about massive scale and you, you, you want to be an international business. You want to employ thousands of people. You, no, I don't. You know, and it's just being true to yourself. So I asked him about finance and I said, you know, in your world, what would, would you do here? And I got the go and find a shop, borrow lots of money, scale, 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 exit rapidly. And, and I realized two things. One, I have asked a private equity guy. That was a big mistake because that model... <laughs> That model is what works in private equity. It doesn't necessarily work for someone like me who says, I want a containable business that I can manage. I don't want to employ lots of people. That's a monster. So that was the first thing. Um, And I think the second thing was um, the awful realisation that uh, he didn't have all the answers for me. And I was really was on my own and I was going to have to work this out, you know. So that was, it was, well, one size doesn't fit all. It was a good moment, but also a bad moment because had I done what he'd said, I'd have gone bust straight away, frankly, particularly given Brexit, the rise of the internet inexorably, you know, having stores was never going to be a, a good place to be if you're a small a small player in what I did. So, and it was understanding that he didn't understand my business. You know, don't assume everyone understands your business when they're giving you advice. They, they probably don't. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, for, for property people, we always assume that actually it, it, property is a lovely umbrella. It's a huge church. And what works for holiday lets will not necessarily work elsewhere. And you've just got, you've got to be very, um, uh, you know, 
happy with what you're doing and how you're doing it. And as you say, just take the nuggets from people, but don't assume that, you know, or be put off from doing something because they, they don't know what you're doing. Yeah, it's very relevant. So an example, um, everybody who works in fashion said to me, don't do shoes, you'll get a massive return rate. It's awful. But I actually was doing relatively expensive shoes. So in fast fashion, the return rate is between 40 and 60%. You go bust on that. That's why none of the fast fashion companies are making money. I couldn't make money on, on fast fashion. But I was selling shoes between 180 and 200 pounds. Now, I was also selling them to older customers, people like me who were, you know, 45 plus. And those people know their own shoe size. They know what they like. And also they're sensible. They're not going to get multiple pairs of shoes costing 200 quid on their credit card. And I, my return rate was less than 5%. Most of the time it was hovering around 1% or 2%. I had one style that was a problem that flipped it into 5%. So I think that had I not been prepared to test that, I'd have been put off from the outset. So even if the received wisdom says one thing, if you really believe that actually you've got a service or a product here that is different from the competition, it's worth giving it a try and just seeing, just kick the tires, just test it on, on some real customers and see what they do. So, well, thank you very much for that. Um, you know, the, I think one of the things that I've got out of our chat this morning is that you do have to know what you're going to be doing and then get going and make sure you're marketing and that you're visual enough, that you are out there. Yes. And I think I'd add one thing to that, which is don't be tempted to leave things to the last minute. I, When I started out, I, I realised that I didn't know enough about the nitty gritty of a website. I mean, literally software programming to set up Shopify as it was in 2015. So I employed someone to do it. I could have worked it out. I knew actually in my heart of hearts, if I was a really good girl, I'd probably sit there and work it all out myself. But I thought it's going to take me months to do this. I can pay him a few thousand pounds and he'll get it done by the end of the week. And although I would have been flushed with success and felt terribly pleased with myself had I done it, it would have been three months down the track. So I paid him to do it. He gave me lots of advice about what to do on, on operations as well, because he'd done it for other small businesses. Very rapidly, I realized that the small businesses he'd done it for were all email-based, not product-based. And he was basically saying to me, you don't need to set up all the mailing stuff and the postage and the, you know, um, uh, the uh, how to return your product, uh, all that sort of stuff, the, 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 the sort of package you do for the printing of the labels. You don't need to do that on day one because you're not going to get you know, one, one order. You can handwrite it. Don't worry about it. No, 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 no. In, in my world, that's 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 a big issue because you're not prepared. Yeah. And as I said, you know, good girl, I like being prepared. So I made sure that we had all that. Given that I got 76 orders on day one, writing all those things by hand would have been a problem. Having said that, um, one of the things that did crop up, which I hadn't anticipated in operations, was that um, I got a logo stamp to put on on the boxes of the shoes so that I could create something that wasn't expensive but looked nice. And the shoe boxes arrived and they were shiny and they wouldn't take the ink. Oh. So what I had to do on the fly was invent another way of making this look like proper packaging. And the simple answer was a bow, which meant I had to go out and buy ribbon the day before I launched so that I had enough ribbon to tie them, make them look nice. And that was my that was my branding on the box, if you like. Yeah. So I think, you know, I, I probably sound very critical of my my lovely colleague who helped me set up the website on, on you know, his, his perhaps lack of insight about operations. But I think if you work it through yourself, you can see where the pinch points are and just be prepared. Yeah. And that's that's absolutely 
vital. You, we've we've skirted around uh, systems because that's a a whole a whole episode in itself. But it is about being being prepared, being the Boy Scout, and not just yes, leaving yes. things to chance. Yeah, work out what they're going to do, what you're going to need to send them, what that means they're going to come back to you with, how you're going to manage that process, what you need, what records you need that to generate, and literally just work through dot to dot and and. Don't start scaling until you've done that and you've got it right, because otherwise you will get into a muddle. You know, it, it, once you've got hundreds of customers coming to you about things or hundreds of responses on social media, you haven't got time to keep going back and redoing stuff. You know, work out a way that works, get it right and move on. Now, one thing that you did mention to me off screen was this importance of stopping something that doesn't work making sure that you then concentrate on what does, particularly on your marketing. Yes. So very early on, I was told by a lot of people that a lot of events, things like um, Spirit of Christmas and um, Alexandra Palace, you know, things run by magazines. You go there, you sell your products and you get lots of customers. Now, I use those events to, uh, to collect email addresses. But I was also looking to sell products and I was also looking to find out where the right type of customers were and what they were interested in. And the thing that I found was that it was very easy to get swept along in being busy and doing stuff that made you feel you were you know, a real business, but actually not being ruthless about what worked from either collecting email addresses, selling shoes, or getting feedback from customers, the right sort of customers, and then either doing more of what worked or not doing any more of the stuff that didn't. And you, I think it helps if you walk up front with yourself about what the criteria are for success. And then... Yep. So, so not, for instance, in property, so in property, that would be very much, um, I am looking for funding. I want only to deal with people who can give me 100 grand plus. Yes. Or if I spend more on doing up the bathroom because it appeals to me and I like that, does it actually deliver a customer more enthusiastic to spend money on that house at the end? Or are they still looking at the overall price compared with the other similar done up properties nearby? Because one of the things that that, that resonated with me a, a lot early on was, was this feedback about events, 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 you must do events. And actually, I found that only two of them worked out of the seven or eight that I tried. And once yeah. I just eliminated the other six, life became much more profitable and I actually wasn't just being busy for the sake of it. You know, being busy gives you a nice warm feeling, but it doesn't make any money unless you've actually really worked out, is this profitable? Is it giving me what I'm looking for? Some events gave me hundreds and hundreds of new customers on emails because I collected their email addresses. And I learned then I have to do a competition where I've never been before to get customers to give me their email address. But where I've been at the show before, they've seen me, they're very happy, they trust me, they'll give me their email address, I don't need to run a competition. So those sorts of things really help. You You'd have to be really ruthless with yourself about stopping doing what doesn't work. Yes, and and actually on just that touching of the email, um, you know, lots of people in property don't work, they, they think they're not working on email because they're not selling a product and all the rest of it. But most people will run out of money at some point and they will need investment, whether it's a joint venture or whether it's a loan. Um, and it's vital to keep your leads warm, but you can't have a lead unless you've got the email address to communicate. Absolutely. So GDPR. So when you collect an email, just make sure you have permission to use it. So all I did was, was create a little slip which had you know lots of boxes to put the letters in because if people write it by hand, loopy, loopy, you can never read it afterwards. Make them print it very clearly and the boxes do that without you having to tell them that. Um, 
collect other information on there that you might need. So like Mr, Mrs, what their actual name is, because sometimes their email address doesn't tell you that. And you want to be able to email them, dear so-and-so. So yeah. ask their name as well as their email address. Um, and then put on it either that you will use their email for marketing, whether you're going to use it to market other to other people and other sell their name to other people. You know, you, I wouldn't put it positively like that, as in we will sell your name. Just put something where <laughs> your name or are you happy to use your name for, for marketing purposes other than there's loads of stuff online that will help you with GDPR. But just be clear, you've got that and keep those um, slips because you may need them. If someone queries, where did you get my address from, blah, blah, you may need that piece of paper. Absolutely. And one of the things that uh, you know, I'm finding more and more in the property world is this um, belief that a business card is so old fashioned. We oh. don't need that because, you know, I can just give you a QR code on my phone and your phone will suddenly have all my information. Why do you think a card, old fashioned though it is, really works? For the simple reason that tech often doesn't. So there's, there's sort of two, two aspects of that. Firstly, you may not have mobile reception. Secondly, the person you're trying to do this with may not know how to do it. Uh, and and you, you, you just a piece of paper or a, a business card is actually also a physical and visual thing. And we are human beings, and I think that we are innately sensorial. We, we like touching, feeling, seeing, etc., and there's nothing like the, you know, the handing over. And then you find it later and it prompts something. Promising to get in touch with somebody, they get millions of contacts every day. That's much less personable to do it afterwards than it is if you actually physically give them something. Yes. And, and of course, the other problem I, I, I always find is that, yes, I, I'm going to try and I'm going to spend some time this morning, for instance, going through my phone. I know there is a woman in there who I want to interview, but she didn't have a card. And yes. she just literally, within seconds, disappeared into my phone. I'm, I know I've got her email, her inside leg measurement, frankly, but yes. I don't know her name. Yes. So and how, how can I find her? Even, even if all you can do is write her details on the back of your business card and keep it yourself, you've got a business card, you've got her details. <laughs> you know, that's what I do in lots of situations. If if, if all else has failed, that's that's the thing. And I, I always have lots of business cards. I was told so many times, and also because I work in e-commerce, people would be very, you know, oh dear, you can't so old-fashioned, you know, are you not with it? Surely you're digital, etc. I'm sorry, but sometimes digital doesn't work. And do not be embarrassed about saying, actually, I've got a business card. We like it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing your pearls of wisdom with us about starting up a business and marketing it. Um, I know that all my listeners will get so much out of it and be able to take little nuggets, which is what they all like, uh, to go and apply to their own businesses. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's, it's been great to talk and it's always good to share. And just that's, that's my last takeaway is that people love sharing. Don't be afraid to ask people. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Property Solopreneur podcast with Rachel Troughton. If you want to create a professional and profitable property business, download my property business checklist now at racheltroughton.com slash checklist.